Good morning. So this morning we are completing our two-month journey with Moses and the Hebrew people in a series we've titled Rescued. Uh, And today we are going to be reading from the one passage of scripture that doesn't come from the book of Exodus. It comes from the book of Deuteronomy, which uh, I'm sure all of you were faithfully scouring this morning as part of your your morning devotions. Deuteronomy is a good go-to to to just get a kind of refresher uh, in things. But but in this passage, we're going to see Moses' life coming full circle. In the first week of this uh, series, we started by uh, looking at Moses' birth and the story of how his mother has to place him in a basket in a river to um, avoid um, being killed and trust him into God's hands. Today, we're going to be reading about Moses' death and the end of his journey from Deuteronomy chapter 34, starting with verse 1. So let's bring this passage up here and listen and follow along to God's word to us today. Then Moses went up from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo, to the top of Pisgah, which is opposite Jericho. And the Lord showed him the whole land, Gilead as far as Dan, all Naphtali, the land of Ephraim and Manasseh, all the land of Judah as far as the western sea, the Negeb and the plain, that is the valley of Jericho, the city of palm trees, as far as Zoar. The Lord said to him, this is the land of which I swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants. I have let you see it with your eyes, but you shall not cross over there. Then Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab at the Lord's command. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Lord, we ask that you would speak to us of your gospel, no matter who we are, no matter what opinions or thoughts or beliefs we have, may our minds and hearts be open this morning to hearing your gospel, your good news, and may we be able to step more fully towards the abundant life that comes in following you. We pray this all in Christ's name, amen. All right, so before we talk about Moses, I want to actually look at another moment in history, more recent, uh, from the early 20th century, the year 1903, in this country, to be exact. Uh, this is the year that Orville and Wilbur Wright, the Wright brothers, uh, first flew what we now know as an airplane. They called a flying machine because no one had thought of the word airplane yet, Uh, but what we think of as an airplane. Orville and Wilbur Wright were the first humans to power an aircraft and um, and to fly. Now, I read a book recently about them by David McCullough, and uh, I knew some things about the Wright brothers. You might know some of this. Some of the things that I knew before was that there was an obsession in the late 1800s and the the early 1900s about who would be the first people to fly. Was it possible for human beings to fly? There were people all over the world, inventors, trying to come up with how human beings could fly uh, and had all kinds of different inventions that that were not working. You had very a lot of money going towards these uh, inventors to try to help them create human flight. You had individuals who were amassing money and trying to give and so that if they came up with, they were part of the funding of the invention, they would make even more money. Uh, you had foundations that were giving. You had institutions like the Smithsonian that was pumping lots of money into people and inventors who were spending 365 days a year trying to work on human flight and militaries around the world 
the United States military, and in uh, different parts of Europe, they were pumping money into inventors, trying to come up with, because if a military could control human flight, you had a technology that gave you a huge advantage over anyone else. If you were, you know, kind of wondering who would be the first people to invent human flight, you would think the people with all that funding and everything else, the Wright brothers were not who you would think about. Orville and Wilbur Wright were uh, brothers who lived in Dayton, Ohio. They had not gone to college. They had never studied kind of like physics or all the things that you would think about uh, that would be necessary in this. And uh, while they were in uh, Ohio, they, they ran a bike shop. That's what they did to earn a living. Uh, they sold bicycles, and then they repaired bicycles in their bike shop. But they become part of the, the worldwide obsession with, like, could human beings fly? And Orville, the older brother, had this kind of crazy notion that maybe if human beings wanted to learn to fly, we should look at the only creatures that can do it in creation, birds, which seems logical. But nobody was thinking that way. All these inventors were coming up with things that just looked totally uh, uh, strange to, to us today, looked nothing like an airplane. But the Wright brothers started studying birds. And they started looking at how birds could manipulate their wings and their tail feathers and control their flight in the air. So the Wright brothers came up with this idea. What they did is, is that they would work for nine months a year in their bike shop in Dayton, and then they would spend summer vacations experimenting with flying in Kitty Hawk, North Carolina. So they would pack up all their stuff and leave for three months, take a train down to Kitty Hawk, and while they were in Kitty Hawk, the first summer, what they did is they, they basically built what they called a glider, which is like a large kite, and they had levers and controls to try to manipulate the wings to learn if they could control how an object soared and flew in the air, and what they learned at the end of the summer was they could fly this glider with strings on the ground like a kite and learn to manipulate and fly it in the air. But then they had to go back to Dayton. Meanwhile, all of these other inventors are just 365 days a year with all of this money trying to invent something. They have to go back for nine months to work in their bike shop to earn more money. By the end of that year, nobody had invented how to fly yet. So they got back in on a train, went back down to Kitty Hawk. And this time they had and built a big enough glider that a human being could be on it and control the levers from the glider itself. They wondered if they could invent that. And they did. And so it was like being up in a big kite, and you would be there attached on a rope to the ground, but you could control the, the, the glider and soar and turn in the air. But then their summer came to an end. They had to go back to Dayton for nine more months while the press and everyone was just obsessed with who's going to fly. And then the next summer they came back with an engine that they thought was both strong enough to propel an, a, an airplane forward, but light enough to still be able to fly. And they thought maybe we're going to be the first ones. And on December 17, 1903, in Kitty Hawk, North Carolina, Orville Wright flew an airplane with five witnesses, and one of whom took a very famous photograph with his brother Wilbur running next to him, and flew a couple hundred feet on a beach. It's one of the most important inventions in human history. The Wright brothers then went back. This is the part I didn't know until reading this book. The Wright brothers went back, and they telegraphed their, families in their family in Dayton to let them know what had happened. They had a father who was a pastor... And they had a, a sister, a younger sister, and they telegraphed their sister. And it's like, we did it. We flew. We've been successful. Uh, you, you know, the press are all talking about this. If you want to tell the press, that'd be fine. So their sister contacted the editor of the local Dayton newspaper and said, my brothers have just been the first ones in history to fly. And the editor of the Dayton newspaper said, sure they did and did not report on the story 
And you know what the Wright brothers did about it? Nothing. They didn't protest. They didn't submit a photograph to prove it. Otherwise, they just packed up their airplane, went back to Dayton, and started working in their bicycle shop. And then, rather than going back to Kitty Hawk, they started taking flights on the weekends in these remote fields of Ohio because they didn't want the press and they didn't want all these people around. And they did this, guys, for two years. For two years, the press kept going, who are going to be the first ones? And all of these, like the Smithsonian's, still giving money to inventors, not knowing that there were two brothers who, on a weekly basis, were flying between fixing bicycles. And the only reason that anybody knows about the Wright brothers is because one day as they're flying, and then after two years, they were now flying like 70 miles on a flight. Like they are like just soaring around Ohio, these two brothers. And finally, there's this guy who's a retired businessman in Ohio. This is a true story, and I promise you there's a point to this. <laughs> Named Amos I. Root which if any of you are expecting and looking for boys' names, that's an awesome one. Amos I. Root. And Amos I. Root, in his retirement, had become obsessed with beekeeping. Again, there is a point to this. <laughs> and had started publishing a little journal on beekeeping called Gleanings on Bee Culture which had about the readership that you would think <laughs> gleanings on bee culture would have. And he would send this out to other bee enthusiasts. Well, one day as he's in the fields of Ohio looking at bees and studying them, farmers start telling him about this flying machine that goes buzzing around every now and then, and then he saw it. And he tracked it back and got to know the Wright brothers. And in 1905, two years after they started flying, Amos I. Root wrote an article about Orville and Wilbur Wright and their flying machine that he had seen and witnessed, and someone in the national press read that article, and then the Wright brothers blew up and became famous. If it wasn't for Amos I. Root, there is a chance none of us would have ever heard of the Wright brothers. Because they, and this is so kind of refreshing in this day and age where everything's about my brand and, you know, how I, like, find, like, I feel good if I get more than 40 likes or more than what someone else got on a face. They said they invented this thing. No one believed them, and they didn't care. They were just like, we're just so happy doing our thing. We're not trying to make history. We just love what we're doing. So we're just going to keep doing it. Their legacy is not just that they became famous, by making one of the most important inventions in history, their legacy is that they loved doing what they were doing so much that they just lived it. We've been thinking some about legacies. What's been passed on to us from people before us? And what are the things that we want to pass on? These are our legacies, our things we think about a lot because they're tied in with what means the most to us, what's most important, what's most valuable to us. We want to pass on or we want to hope to embody for someone else. And I've been thinking this week about Moses' legacy as this series comes to an end. And honestly, this is a really disappointing way for Moses' life to end to me. Does it feel that way to you? It's like so anticlimactic. I feel like Moses needed an Amos I root in his life. I feel like Moses needed somebody that when no one's making a big deal about his life coming to an end without being able to enter into the promised land, Amos I. Root was somebody sitting there going, wait a minute, guys, 
we need to pay attention to this. This is a really big deal. And I feel like Moses needed an Amos I root to go, wait a minute. We need to understand this, that Moses can't die. He's the only leader we've ever known. The people should have risen up and like rioted when they heard. I mean, the people, every, think about every step of this journey, they have freaked out about everything. And now they hear that Moses is dying and they don't do it. They don't panic. I'm like, somebody needs to say something here because it feels like Moses' legacy is like damaged, right? Because no one in their legacy wants the word almost there, right? Like if I asked you what Moses did, it's like, oh, well, you know, he freed the people from Egypt and led them into the promised land. No, he didn't. He almost did. No one wants almost associated with their name, right? I led the people to the promised land almost. That's not as good, is it? How'd your sermon go today? Did you preach a good sermon? Almost. There's a huge gap between almost and yes, right? You're an Atlanta sports fan. (laughs) Did the Falcons beat the Patriots two years ago in the Super Bowl? Almost. (laughs) You'd rather like just say no than say almost, right? Almost hurts worse than just no. And it feels like Moses' legacy ends on an almost and no one really cares, but this week, I had an email from somebody. It was a part of this congregation that helped me in my wrestling with this to see this passage a little differently. And they weren't even writing about this passage, but they were just reflecting a little bit on uh, this series and what they've been thinking about through this series. And they reminded me of something really important. They reminded me to not look at each of these passages individually. But the the reason we teach in series here at Covenant is to see threads that tie together and to link these passages, to see a greater whole. When you look just at these five verses, it seems incredibly unfair. I mean, I've been to Mount Nebo where Moses died when I was a seminary student going through the the Middle East. And and the the view up there is just striking because you go up and we had been traveling in, in the Sinai Peninsula for just a couple of days. The people have been there for 40 years And you go up on this mountain, and it's everything for 270 degrees. If you look north, if you look east, if you look south, it's it's what you have seen every day that you've been there. It is hot, and it is brown, and it is lifeless. And I know it gets hot here in Austin, but this is a different level of, this is an 11 heat, okay? When you're, it is so hot. And you go on top of this mountain, it's like desolate, desolate, desolate. But when you go on top of Mount Nebo and you look west, you see something different. It's brown and it's hot and it's dry, but off on the horizon there's this strip of green and blue. And it stands out from everything else you can see for 360 degrees. And we said to our guide, it's like, what is that? And he said, that is the Jordan River. And the green and the blue, the blue is the water and the green are the trees and the plants that go only there near the water. And it's different from everything else. I kind of don't like how I think about God if I just read this passage. And that's okay to say in church, right? Like God looking at Moses going, isn't it desolate? Yes, it is. Hadn't it been desolate for 40 years? Yes, it has been. Are you hot? I'm still hot. Do you see that over there? Yeah, that's amazing. That's the promised land. You're not going. Like... 
When you just read it by itself, it's really hard. But when you connect it with things, you start seeing things differently. And I want to just remind us. I want to take you on the journey that this email helped me to see of what I think might actually be incredibly beautiful about this as we close the series out and worth us all thinking about. Moses starts as a murderer. He starts as someone who has to flee Egypt because he's killed an Egyptian taskmaster. And he goes to Midian. And while he's in Midian, not knowing what he's about, not knowing where he belongs, uh, he, he meets a woman. They get married. He starts working for his father-in-law's company. And then they have a child. And Moses is so lost that if you remember, he names his first child, I am an alien living in a foreign land. Which if you want to scar your child... That is the name to give them, right? It's like, you have no home and you belong nowhere. Have a good life, right? I mean, you think about that. I mean, I've made mistakes as a parent. I've never done that, right? It's like, this is your legacy. But Moses is then found by God at the burning bush. He's found there and Moses is told by God, you are going to go back and lead the people out of slavery in Egypt. And Moses says, I can't do it. I'm not the one to do it. And God gives one promise to Moses. You remember it? He says, I will be with you. And Moses says, frankly, that's not good enough. I need more than that promise. And God says, it's all you're going to get. But to show you I'm with you, take your staff, throw it on the ground, and it's going to become a snake, and then you can grab it. God starts doing these signs and wonders just at the burning bush that doesn't convince Moses everything is okay, but convinces him to take the next step to go to in front of the Hebrew leaders to say, God has sent me for this. He performs signs and wonders. He doesn't, he's not given a business plan of how it's going to work. He's just told, go, and I'll be with you. And he gains enough confidence to then go in front of Pharaoh and to perform these different miracles. And then the people are let out of slavery in Egypt and they go to the Red Sea and while the people are freaking out at the Red Sea because they think they're going to die, Moses the promise is now becoming enough for him. He doesn't know what's about to happen but he knows that the Lord, he says the Lord is going to fight for us. God is with us and you see the change that starts happening Moses as he starts hearing I'm with you and he's like I need more than that to that promise becoming enough to live a different way with a sense of hope and expectation about what's to come. But what we see that happens then is that then the people have to go on that same journey, right? Because at the Red Sea, Moses is like, God's going to fight for us. He's made us this promise. It's enough. And the people then do what Moses did at the burning bush by going, we need more than that. Frankly, that's a wonderful concept, but we need more than the Lord is with us. But then they see the oceans apart, and they pass through it into freedom. And then they start going, but what are we going to drink? And they say, well, well, there's going to be water that God's going to provide. And what are we going to eat? We don't have any food. And God starts giving them manna from heaven. And the people start experiencing what Moses experienced before them, which is maybe, just maybe, that promise. The only thing we're given, that that promise is enough. We're never given a business plan for how it's going to work. But that one promise becomes enough. And that perhaps we've, we've always taught Moses' legacy wrong. That Moses' legacy is not the one who leads the people from slavery into the promised land, almost. That Moses is the one who's given a promise. And then he shapes and molds a people for whom that promise becomes enough. That promise, which he didn't create himself, he, didn't, he was rescued from having to create a legacy. He's given one thing. And that one thing, as he's dying, he sees the people embracing it 
as they don't panic. It may have been that the most glorious sound Moses could have heard was the silence of the people as they did not panic at the unexpected turn of events that were going to come. The promise that for Moses wasn't enough and became enough that God is with them becomes enough for the people for whom it's not enough. And what he was given lives on in them. And by the way, that promise should echo as things we hear as people of the New Testament as well. Jesus' last words in Matthew to his disciples is, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. Which sounds like this great concept until we hit tragedy. And like, actually, I need more than that. But what if the legacy of Moses, the ultimate way God rescues us, is to say that in each and every one of our stories, you're not going to get a business plan. It's never coming. But what I give you is enough to face whatever today and tomorrow hold. I will be with you. Friends, the greatest thing you will ever hear in your whole life the most important thing that you will ever hear in your whole life is that you are loved by God more than you can imagine. And the love of God means that he will never, ever, ever leave our side. And that is all that we need. We are never going to be given the business plan of how things work but we are given the same promise in Scripture over and over and over again. And if we can actually learn to believe it, not just to say, oh, abstractly, that's a kind of how God works. If that can actually become the thing we cling to in the ups and downs of life, it changes everything about how we live and what we need. It changes everything about what life can become. We started this series with the story of a mom and two daughters in a restaurant and how they had coloring books, and the oldest daughter, the rule follower, was coloring between the lines and doing exactly what she was supposed to do. And at a moment of distraction, the younger daughter leaned forward and grabbed a crayon and started scribbling over the whole page, and the oldest daughter was just almost in tears because the, the design for her drawing had been ruined until the mom looked at her and said, you know, I still think we can make something beautiful out of this. And they began together drawing something new. That's not just a story to think about. That is God's promise. And if you and I can believe that, if we can hear that God's love is that huge to include us in every moment, then it gives us unbelievable freedom and peace and joy, both in how we live and in how we die. Because we're never alone. And that's enough. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, we do pray that you would be with us, that you would remind us again that the legacy of Moses is complete because what you gave to him became embedded in the people of Israel, that they knew that you were still with them even when Moses was not and that that was all they needed. May that promise which has been passed down through the generations to every single one of us, may it be enough for us in the here and now. 
We would love a business plan as to how things are going to be sorted out in this nation and in this world and in our marriages and in our friendships and in our families and in our own life, but we will never be given it. What we are given today is the promise of God whispered through Moses to each of us. I'm with you. And I pray that we would have faith enough to cling to the idea that that is enough, that that is all we need. We give you thanks and praise that this promise is real for each and every one of us. And we lift this prayer up in Jesus' name. Amen.